Good morning, Bridgeway. How you guys doing? My name is Pastor Kurt, one of the pastors of Bayside Church. I greet you from your brothers and sisters at Bayside. It's so great to be here. And um, I just, I just want to tell you, uh, Lance told me ahead of time, and I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm going to say it. He told me that the 11 o'clock Sunday morning service is his favorite service. And uh, you guys are his favorite. He told me there's like literally one other service on Saturday. He hates them. And... Um, <laughs> You're his favorites, and I'm not supposed to say it, but I just had it. He said, whatever you do, preach your best sermon at 11 o'clock, because these people are like 30% more saved than anyone he knows. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't say this exact same thing to all other services, as far as you know. Anyway, uh, I am one of the pastors of Bayside Church. We're in James. If you got your Bible, turn to James chapter 1. I hope you do got a Bible. I've been told that there are Bibles around you if you don't have one. Where is James at? It's in the New Testament, which is the last third of your Bible. If you look in there for a book called Hebrews, that's the one you want to look for because it's a really long book. And James is right after the book of Hebrews. So if you get to Hebrews, just keep turning, but don't go too fast because James, not very long. There's only a few chapters there. We're right at the very beginning, and it's a series that has been entitled Discovering Practical Christianity. And I love that. What does it mean to actually do authentic Christianity? The theme of James, I believe, is found in the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, which is found in James 1.22. Here's the big point James is trying to say. He says, be doers of the truth. Don't just hear the truth. Don't just know the truth. Don't just be informed about the truth. But if you have authentic faith, real Jesus faith, if you're more than religianity, you'll be a doer of the truth. You see, I believe this, and this is what we're going to talk about today. We are over-informed and under-transformed. We are saturated with information, and yet we struggle to live and do and speak and act in ways that Jesus would live and speak and act. Let's figure this out. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, somewhere on some white space uh, on your phone, on your notes, on your, that little um, uh, you know, pamphlet that we gave you, a little brochure, I think you gotta fill in the blank in there, amen? Yes. We'll get to the fill in the blank. I know some of you will not sleep tonight unless we fill in the blank, but we will get to that in just a second. I want you to write the word context, and I want you to put three dots or three numerals down there because there's three facts about the book of James you have to understand to really master it. And this is not just important for our passage this morning, but for the entire passage, you have to master these three facts. Number one, James, the guy that wrote this book, is James, the brother of Jesus. He's Jesus' brother. He's not the apostle James. He's the brother of Jesus. Lance covered this last week in the very first message in this series, did a phenomenal job. If you haven't heard that message, Go back and listen to it. But it's important to understand this is James the Jesus, the brother of Jesus. Number two, this is the very first Christian church ever. How many here have ever seen a sign for First Baptist or First Presbyterian or First Methodist? You see that they're liars. <laughs> this is the real First Baptist church in the city of Jerusalem, right after the resurrection of Jesus in the day of Pentecost. And number three. The fact that you have to know about this book is that these Christians are now being written to after being scattered. They're, they've been dispersed. This is in the first half of the chapter. So what happens is Christianity comes at the day of Pentecost. The first church is formed. James, the brother of Jesus, is not following Jesus while Jesus is doing his earthly ministry. But when he sees the resurrected Lord, he converts and he quickly becomes a leader in the early church. They make him the pastor of the very first church. And then this church is persecuted. One of their leaders is stoned to death. Their businesses are taken. They're kicked out of their homes and and they're dispersed all over the Near East. And James goes to pastor these people who are persecuted. Now, why are these three facts so important before we get into the passage? Well, well, first of all, let's take that James is the brother of Jesus. Um, how can I illustrate this? So how many here today you say you are the oldest child in your family? Raise your hand if you're the oldest, wherever the oldest. Look at me. Look at me, oldest. Look at me. Keep your hand up. Look at me. I have a message from Jesus Christ for you this morning. I have a message from Jesus for you. Here's the message from Jesus. You're not the boss of me. I don't care what you say about mom putting you in charge while she's gone. You are not the boss of me. 
All right, where are the youngest? You're the youngest in your family. Raise your hand right here. So they're all like, I'm right here. (laughs) They're always that way. Youngest, look at me. Look at me. I have a message from Jesus for you this morning. You get away with too much. (laughs) There's no rules for you. By the time you came around, mom and dad were too tired to raise a child. You're like a feral human. Dad spent his child, your childhood on the couch with a remote control asleep on a nap. Where's the middles? All the middles. Look at me, middles. I'm a middle. Five of seven right here. Look at me. Middles. Look at me. I have a message from Jesus for you. God knows your name. No one else does. There's no family photos of you. The point of this is that family systems are complicated, amen? So what does it mean to pastor as the brother of Jesus? Now, Peter, the great apostle, spent three and a half years camping with Jesus. James spent his entire childhood with Jesus. This is why the the flavor of James, if you read this, the allegories, the metaphors, they sound more like parables. This is the the Jesus language. You can find it in James because they're they're in the same household. Do you ever, how many here have siblings, more than a couple siblings? And you get together and you start talking about all your body ailments. Do you do that? I have three brothers. We get together and I'm like, how's your bowel? How's your bowel? How's your hips? How's your knees? Because we share all the same stuff, right? This is why it's so important. If you want authentic Christianity, you you go to the brother that grew up with Jesus. This is why this book's so important. And then the second idea, that being the first church, this is the most primitive in the best sense of the word Christianity. We love to change Christianity. We want to build Christianity in our own image. We love religionity. We don't like Jesus-anity. And so how many here have ever been to the Vatican? Anyone here ever been to the Vatican in Rome? I mean, we take a guy who is known for ministering among the poor in the Near East, in Galilee. It's agriculture. What is Galilee? What is Galilee? Galilee is Bakersfield, people. (laughs) Jesus, the Messiah, comes to Bakersfield. Okay? And then what do we do? We take it to Rome and we put gold on it. Now, I'm not criticizing the Catholic Church. We all do that. Every denomination does that. We remake Christianity in the form that we want it to be in, not the form that it actually is in. And so if you want the real thing, James is the book you study. And then the last thing, they were scattered by persecution. Now, why is this important? Now, when saying this, I don't want to minimize things that you've been through because I'll tell you what, if your church is anything like my church, if you guys are regular humans like we're regular humans, everyone's been through a lot the last three years. Anyone here know someone suffering through a trial? I can't tell you the amount of families I've prayed for. I've prayed against cancer. I've prayed against divorce. I've prayed against brokenness. People dealing with depression, anxiety, panic attacks. I think the whole stress of COVID and the whole stress of our racial divide in our country has brought every single little flaw to the surface, physical and spiritual. Amen? So I don't want to diminish what you've gone through, but I want to tell you, they had it worse than you. By and large, they had it worse than you. I've yet to find a Christian in Northern California has been stoned to death. They had their businesses taken. Listen, they didn't have their rights violated. They didn't have rights to begin with. And here's the amazing thing about the persecution they went through. They went through a more difficult time than we're going through, and they were more fruitful than us. In three generations, Christianity has spread all the way through Northern Africa, all the way through Western Europe, and all the way through the Middle East. They were fruitful. They were inventing hospitals. They were inventing education. They were elevating women. And they transformed a a world so much more divided than our world. You don't even understand the division between different Jewish groups, let alone between Jewish groups and God-fearing Gentiles, let alone between Jewish groups and Gentile groups that worship pagan gods and a plethora of pagan gods. And all of those walls came down in three generations because of the way they lived in a much more pronounced persecution. What did they have that we have left behind? That's the question that James wants to answer. What is authentic faith? In fact, the two themes of James is simply this. How do you respond to persecution? How do you respond to trials and suffering? What does it do to you? What's good about it? How should you look at it? And then what's real Christianity? 
which real faith, even from the very beginning, the idea of holding on to authentic Jesusness is a main theme, and it should be a passion of ours. We should be always suspect that we want to create religiousity, and we should always be returning to this. And this is why I say this to you, and I mean this from my heart. Please get, lean into this study of James. Don't miss a week. And maybe, just maybe, we'll find what they have. And we'll realize, why, why are we over-informed and under-transformed? Why are we over-informed and under-transformed? Now, I'm not against information. I'm not against learning. I'm, I'm against studying and learning, especially theology, but I think even current events, how you vote, how you think about issues, that we ought to think about issues more complex than we do. We think about issues too simply. There's, 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 it, it, we actually need to be better at education, but there's a thing that we can do in education where we become so saturated in data that we are paralyzed in action. We become over-informed and under-transformed. I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing for this. How many emails get sent today? You know how many emails get sent today in our world? 333 billion emails every single day. And they all come to my inbox. Doesn't that feel that way? <laughs> how many text messages are we sending? From 2005 to 2022, we have sent over 2,300 billion. That's 11 zeros worth of text messaging, which is interesting because my kids, they're all adults now, they don't, they don't send emails anymore. They barely ever email and they never text or at least they never read my texts. Some parents say amen. What are they doing? They're not emailing. They're not texting of all those billions of emails and text messages. They're direct messaging on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Twitch. Someone said to me, Pastor Kurt, I sent you a message. And I'm like, where is it? I don't know where it is. And then we send each other the YouTube links. YouTube links, we're not actually informing ourselves in the right way. We're just changing YouTube links and the links only confirm our bias. Don't send your pastor any more links. I'm gonna send it here, Pastor Lance, have you seen this? Have you seen this, what someone so is saying on this and this and this? I don't need any more links. And then it gets worse at work. How many here get notifications from Microsoft Office? We're gonna have an inner healing realm for you right here after the service. Or, or, or now they got, I started off Microsoft Office at a base site, and now we got not just Microsoft Office, we got Microsoft Teams. So I don't have to answer my emails and my text message, I have to answer my Teams notifications, and then there's Zoom notifications, and then there's Slack notifications. Anyone got Slack? That's proof Satan's alive and well in our world. <laughs> the Pew Institute has told us that we're spending 20% of our time on social media now, informing ourselves with social media. So here's how this looks. What's going on on Instagram? Oh, he's got way better abs than me because he's doing intermittent fasting. And he's got a Tesla and a nicer house and really great kids and a really great wife. His dog has got abs. <laughs> he's just scrolling. You're just feeling condemned because they're all doing it better than you're doing it. They're living on the beach. They're groomed and perfumed. They got abs and they've got a photo of themselves eating a hamburger. How does that work? So I'm getting off Instagram. That's for Satan. I'm going to get on Fox News. Oh, my gosh. There's a fire. There's a fire at a gas station making gas prices higher in Russia and my backyard. It's, it's what they call, it's literally a, a technical term. It's called doom scrolling which means the way they get you hooked to your phone is they give you bad news after bad news because bad news causes the controversy and the adrenaline. And if they give you good news, you go, oh, everything's fine. And you go and live your life and be happy and put the phone down. Over-informed, under-transformed. And here's why we've believed a lie and we don't even realize we believe this lie. And I'm gonna get to the fill-in. I'm gonna get to the text. Hold on. Here, here's the reason why I gotta do this longer intro. James is a very direct book. I mean, it's my first time speaking at Bridgeway, and I'm like, Pastor Lance, give me 1 Corinthians 13. You know, give me Romans 8. There is therefore no condemnation. He's like, no, come and preach James to us because it's really hard and challenging, and I'll be gone for a week. <laughs> Just know I am preaching at me and hoping the shrapnel hits you because this is a very direct book. It didn't hold any punches. And what James says is this. 
Information alone does not change you. So we think it does. We think if we just get the right bullet point, we get the right little epiphany, we get the right little text, the right little Twitter, we get the right little sermon point, we fill in the blank, we're just gonna have the little epiphany and then we're gonna change. But the truth is just knowing something doesn't make us act differently. This is, I mean, this is so obvious to prove. There's no heroin addict out there just going, well, this is so good for me. I know that this is good. No, they know it's bad for them. Some of you right now, you're, 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 you're like, oh, heroin, I would never do heroin. Okay, let me do something closer to you. What about smoking? <sighs> no smoker thinks smoking is good for them. They all know. They're like, it's, yeah, just killing me right now. I feel like I'm dying. <laughs> no one is like smoking and going, I'm running a marathon right after this. It's going to help. <laughs> Some of you are still, oh, I don't smoke. I don't do heroin. All right, let's get in your real world. How about in and out burger? You know while you're eating that In-N-Out burger that you're killing yourself. You know, you know the science. You're eating the double-double and you can feel your left ventricle clogging as you eat it. It's just be, you're, you're having arrhythmia while you're eating it. And you're like, I don't care. It's been a hard week. And you dip a French fry in chocolate. And you're like, who wants to live so long anyway? Right? Oh, some of you are still not with me. You're still looking at me like, okay, what about this one? The argument you're having with your wife, sir, you're arguing with her, and while you're arguing with her, you know you're doing damage to your marriage. You know it. There's a little voice in your head going, you shouldn't say that. Don't say that. Oh, you said that? Oh, my gosh. You're going to be alone forever. You know what they call that little voice in your head? Jesus. Because you know what you're saying is damaging and not loving and not constructive. You don't want to say it. The Apostle Paul even says, the thing I should do, I do not do. The very thing that I don't want to do, I keep doing. He knows. We know. Knowing's important. I'm not against knowing, but knowing is incomplete to authentic faith. What is it, what is it that causes real transformation? That's what James is concerned about. How do we change? What is real faith? How can, I, how can I not just be informed, but really be transformed? Here's your uh, fill in the blank. Faith without action isn't real faith. We, we've got to get a hold of this authentic, I grew up with Jesus faith that James has. What are the signs of it? I think there's two signs according to this passage. There's probably more than those two signs, but, but James definitely highlights on two very end signs of going, you can actually look at your life and go, I have real Jesus-anity. I don't have religionity. I have Jesus-anity. You can tell it by these two indicators, these two fruits, because if you have a faith, no matter what you call that faith, no matter how religious you are, no matter how often you go to church, no matter what you give, if you have this faith and it doesn't result in these actions, then that faith isn't a authentic Jesus faith. If you're still with me, give me an amen. Uh, James 1, 19 through 27. Let's see how far we can get before you guys get hangry. All right, uh, verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Now, in the Greek, it's much more imperative than the English sounds. So, so what you want to read here is you want to insert some explanation points here. There's no, there's no uh, actual punctuation in Greek, right? And so if we were to read this with its real grammatical emphasis. It's almost like the command form if you speak Spanish. Spanish has a command form. So this is, my dear brothers and sisters, really listen to me right now. This is of the highest importance. And the way he says this is of the highest importance. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger, I want you to circle that phrase, highlight it, underline it, and draw a little unicorn next to it. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Listen to me very carefully. Outrage is easy. It doesn't solve anything. Now, anger itself is not sin. If anger were sin, then Jesus would have sinned because the Bible clearly says that Jesus got angry. But apparently, according to James, the brother of Jesus, there's a difference between human anger and right anger. Human anger and right anger. And I'll just tell you, we are drunk in human anger nowadays, my friends. We get outraged. We get dramatic. So, and you know what causes it? There are two sources that cause our human anger. And, and you can even be right on the issue and you still have human anger. The first cause of human anger, if you're taking notes, I'll help you write down this, is I was disrespected. 
It's when we feel our position is disrespected, our family is disrespected, our title is disrespected, our individuality is disrespected, our rights are disrespected. When we are disrespected, we're very, very respect sensitive, significant sensitive, and when we get disrespected, we get human anger. So you could be right on the issue, but wrong in that you have human anger. Why? Because disrespect is centered in ego, not the gospel. It's centered not in the purposes of God or the goodness of God or the grace of God or the advancement of God's kingdom rule and reign in people's lives, which is always based on good news and grace. It's centered in my own individual upsetness. And this is just a plague among us. So I, I'll give you one example of where this happened to me. One of the first times I listened to, or realized this, I was on campus when I was a young uh, seminarian and I would, spent 27 years before I came to Bayside um, uh, working with university students on the secular university campus. I was a missionary to secular campuses. So I was on the campus I actually was a student at. That was where I was doing my training at Central Washington University. And one day, this heretic comes on campus. He's an open-air preacher. He gets up in the middle of the mall, and he just starts spouting this horrible heresy. I mean, just really bad, weird cult stuff. And he's yelling it, and he's accusing students of this and that. And because it's so dramatic, he's drawing this big crowd. Well, I immediately get defensive and offended, and I can't believe it, this guy. And so I walk right up to him. You know, I'm pretty bold and, and, and stupid. So I just walk right up to him and said, hey, what you're saying is wrong. And I start squirting, uh, quoting scriptures at him, but he's ignoring me. It's just really frustrating. He's just ignoring me. He keeps yelling. It's more and more students. Finally, I'm raising my voice, and I'm kind of backing up. Finally, I find this little bench and I get up on the bench and I start trying to rebuke him from the bench. Like I'm on his level now because he's standing on something. And the next thing I know, I am sitting there on the bench. I'm not making this up and I'm yelling at him like, you're not being very loving, you idiot. <laughs> Shut up in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and my friend comes on and he's like, grabs my cup. He's like, hey, maybe he'd stop embarrassing all of us so much. The next day, the main guy that was discipling me at that time, he came into my room and he had this poster. And he said, I want you to hang this on the back of your door and I want you to look at this poster every single day before you go out. And the poster had James on it and said, everyone should be quick to listen. And then in capitals, slow to speak. <laughs> you see, my friend, you can even be right and you're given into human anger. What's the second reason for human anger. It's loss of control. It's that feeling that our culture, our world, our lockdown, our politics, whatever it might be, it, it, we've lost control. And when we, that's a very, very unsecure un feeling, that loss of control. And so what happens is it creates frustration and human anger in us. And I just want to say this, and I know some of you are going to have a hard time believing this, and some of you are going to be reassured by this, but no one should take this for granted. Listen to what I'm going to say. God has never lost control. Not of you, not of your future, not of your family. Our world loses control all the time. There are no emergency meetings in heaven about your life. There are no emergency meetings in heaven about your future. There's no emergency meetings in heaven about our world. God's not calling the angels together tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. Say, get into the office early. We gotta do something about the state of California. It's a disaster. Come on, angels, get in here. Someone get a dry erase board. <laughs> Let's get some ideas up there. How are we gonna do this thing? God is in control. Therefore, you do not have to take control or express your frustration about the lack of control. What do you need to do then? Let's look at this next verse. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Now stop right there, because a lot of times, especially if you've been raised in the church, the second you hear that word moral filth, you think it's uh, sex trafficking or adultery or pornography or drunkenness. And by the way, those all are sins. There's no, the Bible has many passages about those sins. But in context, we've got to be people of context, right? The moral filth he's talking about is not adultery. The moral filth is human anger. It's our getting outraged because we don't think God's got enough control lately. Or that somehow God can't protect his cause. And that we're in danger by human forces against the cause of God. You say it like that, it sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? But we get all angry. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept 
the word planted in you, which can save you. The idea of that planted, we don't fully understand it because we're not as agrarian as them, but it's that deeply planted, carefully watered seed. Then verse 22, this really is the theme. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. If you want to go, what was the theme of James? It's simply this, over and over, here's the theme. Hear, receive, do. Hear, receive, do. And, and he's not against hearing, He's saying hearing is step one. Receiving is different than hearing. And doing is different than receiving. And we have a do problem. We have an application problem. A lot of us, we love hearing because we love learning and we love having the knowledge and we want to have the bullet points and we want to say, I know all this theology and I, can, I got all the $3 theological words, but we're not really receiving. Receiving is you're applying it to yourself. You're doing the moral inventory on your heart, not someone else's heart. And then doing is where you put it into your calendar. And this is where we really struggle the doing. We all inherently have an anti-do I learned this first when I started leading Bible studies. I leading this men's Bible studies. All these guys, they're great Christians. They're committed. They're kind-hearted, soft-hearted, you know, guys. And we went through 1 John. We went through this little study in 1 John. If you know anything about 1 John, it's this tiny little book. And the only point in the book is love one another. Love, 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 love. Dear children, love, love with extra love sauce. Put some love on it and then love. It's a very simple book. Very hard to do. And we get the end of the study and I go, all right, what are we going to do about this? How do we apply this? How do we apply the message of 1 John? This guy said, let's love one another. I said, okay, but what are we gonna do? We're gonna, with passion. I said, but what are we gonna do? We're gonna love each other with passion, but what are we gonna do every day, Kurt? Okay, what are we gonna do every day? Love each other, but how? Well, I mean, passionately. Finally, there's one kid, Dave, he raised that. He said, um, maybe we should hold each other accountable to do study time together in the library every afternoon so we get good grades and we're a good witness to our professors. Ding, 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 ding. See the difference there? See how hard that is? What is authentic Jesus first century? I grew up with Jesus faith. It's the sort of faith that makes you show up to a library at 3 p.m. and hold each other accountable. Why? Not just because you want to get a good grade, because you want to be a witness to a professor. That step. That, and by the way, that changes the world. Way more than your Instagram post. It changes the world when we become hearers, receivers that do. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. There's so much we could say about mirrors in the Near East and, and I'm, I'm not going to go into a lengthy discussion on it, but um, I think what James is getting to here is why you look in the mirror. So if you look in the mirror with one set of motivation, you're going to forget quickly what you see. If you look in the mirror with another set of motivation, it causes you to act. What do I mean by that? So why do I look in the mirror? I'll just give you one reason. I'm not looking in the mirror to look great or anything. In the morning now, my only job to look in the mirror is to make sure I'm not embarrassing myself. It's the only thing. I look in there, I'm like, do I got that hair coming right out of my ear? It's about this. Okay, so <laughs> you guys did not laugh at that joke. I don't care. I know Bridgeway is known as the Bible church, very spiritual, but I don't care. Uh, by the way, some of you, if you're under 40, you don't have to laugh at that joke because you don't know what I'm talking about, but you will. <laughs> the more you lose up here, the more you start getting right here, sir. How many over 50-year-olds know exactly what I'm talking about? You've been walking around with two weeks with a giant phone cord coming out of your ear and no one told you. <laughs> Wife, that is your job. That's all I'm looking at the mirror for. I'm looking for like, do I got like some smudge here or thing or big rooster toe something? So I, if I, it's all good, if it's like not embarrassing, I'm good, I'm done, go to work. That's not the way my dermatologist looks at me. My dermatologist, man, she's mean. I go in there, she's a short little lady and she's got a microscope and she's examining all the top of my ears, the top of my head, the top of my nose. And then this hand, she's got a microscope. She's like, ha ha, found one. And in this hand, she has a torture device known as a freeze spray. Does anyone, who knows what I'm talking about? She's like, 
looking at him like, ah, ah, ah. I go back to the office. I look like a leper. <laughs> getting all the basal cells out of me. So even if it's not a basal cell, she's like, let's just chip that one off for the heck of it. <laughs> Why? Because she wants me to live. She's looking at me for a different motive. And see, we get this reversed. We start looking at other people's cancers. We look at ourselves for grooming. We look at them for cancer. You see what's growing on them? You see what's growing on them? I can see it. Listen, it's easy to see what's wrong with other people. That's easy. That's so easy. How many here can see what's wrong with your own kids? Of course you can, because it's all your little faults running around. Your little genetic faults passed on to some other human. They didn't even choose, they didn't even choose to get those faults. It's easy to see what's wrong with someone else. What, what, what Paul's saying is you got to look in the mirror with your own moral inventory, and you got to look not just for grooming, how you look on the outside, but really what's life and what's not life. And then he says this, verse 25, we're almost there. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law. Now, okay, can we go Bible school here for two seconds? All right, if I teach you for two seconds. So um, two ways of interpreting this passage. Whoever looks intently into the perfect law. What does he mean by perfect law? What's your choice there as a theologian? Well, you really have two choices. One, he could be talking about the Old Testament law. Now, there's three types of Old Testament law. One is the civil law. This is how we should interact together as nation mates. The other one is uh, temple law or ceremonial law. This is how we celebrate the religion in our temple. It's, it's foreshadowing the coming of Jesus. And the third one is moral law. That's the Ten Commandments. It's the moral absolutes that God believes in and, and we should all believe in. Now, most uh, Christians don't even know there's three different types of uh, law in the Old Testament. This is why they get all confused about what laws apply to it today and what laws don't and what Jesus said by came to fulfill the law because they haven't even studied the Old Testament enough to know that there's three different types of law. And they don't know of the three different types. The one that actually is the most important is the moral law. If you ask the average Christian to list the Ten commandments in order they couldn't do it, which is so sad. And part of that reason is because mistakes that pastors like I make, which we, we actually, uh, we preach against legalism and don't be bound by legalism. And we talk about the law in such a way that we don't realize that the law is a beautiful thing. The fact, you know, you know which law I'm talking about right now, you know, the one that's, there is only God and honor your parents and don't cover your neighbor's Tesla, right? Those 10. It's beautiful. It's beautiful how well we would treat each other if we understood and masters and saw and owned this law. And, and what's, what's, what our Jewish brothers and sisters give us that we've lost is a love for the law. You should go learn the law. When your pastor, and he's such a great pastor, teaches the Old Testament, embrace and learn and study and own the law because the law is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. It's lovely. I don't actually think that's the, the choice here, though, even though that would be a great choice, and, and it is the perfect law. I think he's talking about a different law because in the next chapter, he uses two phrases. He says that um, uh, the law of liberty is a phrase he used, and he says then, this is the real telling one, the royal law. What's the law of liberty and what's the royal law? Well, that, you remember the New Testament, they came to Jesus, and James would have been a witness to this. They tried to fool him. They said, um, of all the different commandments in the Old Testament, what's the most important one? They're like, we got him now. There's over 600 commandments. There's no way. If he picks one, he'll, he'll, all these people over here will be mad at him. If he picks another one, all these people over here will be mad at him. We got him. We got him. And Jesus said, oh, yeah, you know, you don't got me because I have a great answer for that. In fact, it's such a great answer. People are going to be studying this answer 2,000 years later. Here's my answer. The most important commandment are two. Number one, love God with everything you've got. All your possessions, all your emotions, all your intellect, everything, everything. Love God with everything. And treat people the way you want to be treated. Do those two things, you'll fulfill them all. It's genius. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the law of Christ. And what uh, Peter and James and Paul and all the early disciples held on to. Oftentimes we're told Christianity has changed so much over the years and nothing could be further from the truth. This idea of the royal law, love God with everything and treat others at the pinnacle of the way you would want to be treated. Live that way. And you've got real Jesus-anity. And, and here's what he says. Look at this. This is so different. 
But whoever looks intently into the perfect law, the law of Christ, the royal law, that gives freedom and continues in that law, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. You want to be a person that's blessed? I'm not talking about the sort of blessing our superficial culture talks about. I'm not talking about getting a Tesla and being groomed or perfumed and having Instagram followers. I'm talking about walking in real blessing. What is the walking real blessing? When you love God with everything you've got and it causes you to act in such a way that you treat people the way you wanted to be treated, what will happen is that you will walk in freedom. And the Bible says this, you'll give freedom. Every room you walk into, freedom will increase. That's blessing. There's, I know so many people, every room they walk into, they got great intent. Every room they walk into, freedom decreases. Fault finding increases. Slander increases. Nervousness increases. What would, what would be your life at the end of it? They said, man, every room she walked into, freedom increased. Grace increased. Truth increased. Well, you... you you got to be the sort of person that trusts the perfect law, the royal law, the law of Christ. And then you'll be blessed. A blessing like this world doesn't even understand. Verse 26. He goes right after it. That's the positive. That's how to do it right. Then he goes right after the wrong. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues. Deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. You know, you know the sin that we ought to focus on a little bit more than we're focusing on it is how we speak to one another, how we speak to our world, how we speak to the hurting that disagree with us. It's, it's, it's so interesting here. Do you know, uh, in chapter three, he goes after this a whole chapter, so I'm not gonna go too long on it. Get here for chapter three. In chapter four, the first four verses are the best thing ever written anywhere on conflict. James four, if you're married, please come to the James four chapter. If you've ever had a conflict with a coworker, a sibling, a boss, an employee, you, you, gotta, you gotta understand what he says. And in chapter four, he actually says that they're killing one another. Now, do we believe in the early church they were actually taking knives and like killing each other? You know, no, he's, he's using hyperbole here. What happens in chapter four, he's talking about arguments they're having where they're slandering one another. And this is very, very, it's really important. At the beginning of this whole thing, He's not worried about um, their sex lives. He's not worried about their finances. He's not worried about, he's more concerned about their, what they say to each other than any other issue. And I believe that all of those other sins, and they are sins, they start with what we allow to say ourselves to say to one another. They start with whether or not we have compassion in our voices, kindness, blessing, edification in our voices. He says, to not speak this way is moral filth. And he says, to, 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 to be a person who's authentically following Jesus, we have a tight rein on what we allow ourselves to speak over other people. Do you know that fault finding and gossip are listed with drunkenness and slander uh, and, and adultery in the Bible? Drunkenness and adultery. We love to talk about people's sexual sin and people's uh, substance abuse because these are dramatic sins and oftentimes we're safe from those sins. You know, like if I showed up here this morning, if I just showed up, first time I've ever spoken Bridgeway, I walked on this stage and I was like, welcome, welcome Bridgeway Christensen. I'm Pastor Harlow Kurt and I just like to say I'm from Baywatch Church and I would never preach again, right? And rightfully so. If I walked on this stage this morning, I said, here's a picture of my lovely family on the left. Here's my four kids and my lovely wife, 35 years of marriage. And on my right, here's my three mistresses. I would never preach again, and rightfully so. But somehow if I come out here on this pulpit and I passive-aggressively slam another church, slam another pastor, make fun of a political figure, if I actually do something that makes me feel better and them feel less, somehow that's cutting edge. Risk-taking, oh, he's bold, he's calling it out. If I get online and criticize other pastors, it happens all the time with, with, with religious leaders or other churches or other denominations, somehow I'm being bold and courageous and defending the gospel, baloney. 
We have a debt of kindness in our world, not a debt of fault finding and criticism. We need to stop talking about each other and start talking to each other. Much harder to do, much more healthy, much more like Jesus. We need to be a people that speak life over to each other. I'm not saying avoiding the hard conversation. I'm not saying um, I'm, I'm not calling out compromise where you're seeing it. I am saying, Matthew 18, go to the person and quit posting on Instagram. Because Instagram never went one, one person over. It gets down to this religion that our Father accepts. Do you want to know what Christianity is? From the brother of Jesus, he's about to tell us. Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look at, to look after orphans, people that have lost parents people with no father, people with no mother, and widows, people that have lost families, spouses, husbands, in their distress to not turn your eye from the hard thing to see and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What does it mean to be polluted by the world? You grow callous to the suffering of orphans and widows. Um, I believe in tithing. That's right, first time at Bridgeway Church, and I'm going to talk about tithing. Probably be my last time at Bridgeway Church. <laughs> I believe in tithing, and I'll tell you why I believe in tithing, because when I was 22, I looked at my wife, and she said, you're going to believe in tithing, or we're not going to get married. She's very cute, so I started believing in tithing. <laughs> but through the years, as I've studied it, and there's a lot of people that I love that don't have the same conviction as me during tithing, and I love them, and I appreciate them, and they might be right, but what I've just learned is that I love tithing. And I think the people, you know who loves tithing? Tithers. Because what I've found over the years is that God, uh, I never miss a meal and I never miss a bill. And I've lived this adventure where I've seen God reward the fact that we have other focused giving in our life. And uh, I've, just, I've just learned, I think tithing is this, it's 10%. I tithe off of the gross. It's 10%. It's our starting point. We don't just tithe, we give offerings. And then every once in a while, we give what I call the ouch level. Tithes, offerings, and ouch. And it's the funnest way to live. It's the funnest way to live. If you look at the Bible, and I don't have time to go through this verse by verse, but, but if you look at the Bible, there are three main areas where God calls you to be sacrificially generous. And they're very obvious. And, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to preach on it because I don't think any one of us living now in 2022 in Northern California can get to heaven and God's gonna say, you are too generous. Why did you give so much of that away? I think we're extremely wealthy. Our number one problem health-wise in this country is diabetes. That's an overeating disease. I don't want to condemn anyone. I'm just saying, let's be real here about our faith and how it puts into action. Here's the three areas where God calls us to give. Number one is take care of the people that pastor and teach you. It's very clear. Paul says it over and over again. It's modeled in the book of Acts. It's modeled throughout the scripture. Do not muzzle an ox. Take care of the people that pastor and teach you. Number two is give to the work that advances the kingdom of God. In other words, missionaries and church planters. This is very, very clear. It's modeled in the book of Acts. It's modeled uh, throughout all of scripture that they sacrificially gave to strategically advance the kingdom. You are called not to just grow Bridgeway Church, but to grow all churches. You're part of the missionary uh, 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 reach the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth, which is at least to Loomis. <laughs> right? And then there's a third one, and here's the problem with the third one, and it hardly ever gets preached nowadays, and that's a tragedy, because there's six times more verses on the third one than there is on the first two. First two are very well established theologically, no controversy about them at all, but I want to tell you, if you go from Old Testament, if you go from Genesis to Revelation, God's passages, God's exhortation, God's reminder, it's in the prophets, it's in the minor prophets, it's in the major prophets, it's in Kings, it's in uh, uh, all of the major characters of the Bible, all the way through Genesis, and that is this, God cares for the poor. And a Christian church without a care for the poor is not a Christian church. 
See, here's the problem. Throughout history, what we've tried to do, what the enemy tries to do and our soul wants to do is separate the proclamation of the good news, the gospel, from the demonstration of the gospel, and they can't be separated. If you take the proclamation after the demonstration, you don't have good news anymore. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, came down off the mountain and laid hands on a leper. Proclamation, demonstration. They go together. This is, this is why the YMCA is no longer a Christian organization. This is why the Red Cross is no longer a Christian organization. Why Yale University is no longer a Christian organization. Why, and I could go on and on and on and on and on. Because at one point, religious people on this side say, we're tired of giving out blankets. We're tired of actually giving money and resources. And we're tired of actually feeding people. Do you see that's their own fault that they're out on the street? It's their own fault of this thing. We need. To, by the way, if we feed them and they don't go to heaven, then what good is that? And they make all those sort of arguments. And people on this side are like, you know what? Why do we have to preach at them and proclaim them and tell them all the truth? And some of these truths are hard. Can we just give them a blanket? We can just give them water. And I want to tell you, we've got to stop. We've got to proclaim and demonstrate. Because that's where the power is. That's where the Jesus sanity is. I've, I've, learned, I've just learned this from, from 35 years of being married to my wife. She's... So I bought her a dining room table once. And, uh, and we didn't have a lot of money. We lived in Elk Grove and, and we didn't have a lot of money, but, but uh, she didn't like our house. So I tried to make it up to her and we bought a dining room table. And we moved this dining room table in the dining room and I leave to go preach for a week or so. And I'm weary and tired and I get off the road and I can't wait to come home and just have Thanksgiving with my family. It's the day before Thanksgiving. I open the door and, and then I look in my dining room and there's no dining room table. I said, I said, baby, what, what, what happened to the dining room table? She said, oh, I gave it to the neighbors. And I said, why did you give the neighbors our dining room table? She said, because they're really poor and they don't have a dining room table. And I said, but now we don't have a dining room table. <laughs> i never forget what she said to me. Yeah, but we're Christians. Best Thanksgiving I can remember. I don't even know if my kids remember this Thanksgiving. We're, all, we're on the, somewhere between the countertop and the kitchen and the carpet and the, the, and the dining room. Best Thanksgiving ever. One, one time even younger than that, when we first got married, I got asked to do a conference with a guy named Lauren Cunningham. Some of you will not even know that name, but it was a big deal to me, one of my heroes. I couldn't believe they asked me. And I said, uh, I said would you pay for my wife to fly? And they're like, you know, we can't afford it. It's a tight budget. So I said to her, I said, I really want you to come to this conference and uh, we'll scrape together some money and we'll buy a ticket because the, the room's already provided and, and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and it was when my son was really young and we had never gotten any alone time in our marriage for forever. And I just, I just wanted to have one weekend with me and her and not him. And um, <laughs> some young couples in the room understand this. And, uh, and, and we had this gal living with us at the time, and she was great at watching kids, so she could watch him. And we just had to put the money together for the plane ticket. And we saved and saved, and we got the money together. And I remember one day I go into her office, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to talk to uh, her about the trip. And she says, oh, by the way, I got to tell you, I got to tell you before we buy this plane ticket that I'm going to send some money to uh, my sister. Now, Kelly grew up very, very poor, and her sisters were still really locked in poverty. And we had given her sister some money before, and she said, God spoke to me to give my sister some money. And I said, what, how much? And she mentioned the amount. I said, that's the same amount as the ticket. And she said, yeah, I'm not going to the conference. I'm going to give her the, the ticket for the conference. I'm going to give her that money instead, and I'm not going. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting, because God then just spoke to me now. <laughs> and he said, don't do that. And we start having this argument about whether or not, and I start saying to her all the different things that her sister has done that have been bad decisions and how this is a bad stewardship and a bad investment and why she shouldn't give her money to steer because she hasn't earned it. And my wife, I'll never forget it, looks at me. She said, this is not about my sister. It's about my obedience. That, that's Jesus' faith, by the way. You know the thing in marriage where you're supposed to talk it out and when you both agree with each other, then that's what you do? Yeah, my wife doesn't believe in that. <laughs> and, so, and so literally she puts the check in an envelope with my, uh, my sister-in-law's address on it and we're walking out to the mailbox. If you don't know what that is, ask your mom. She'll explain it later. And, um, 
And, and she puts the check in the mailbox, and I'm literally thinking about trying to reach my left arm down there and get the check. And she starts walking out of the office, and we're arguing. About, we're, I mean, I'm arguing. She's done with the argument. We go in her office, and I'm still telling her why this is a mistake. And all of a sudden, at the door of her office, I open the door, and it's her boss, and he leans in, and he says, oh, we're just thing happened to me today. I'm so glad you're in the office because um, I was praying this morning, and God told me to give you a random bonus, and he hands her a check for the exact amount she just put in the mailbox. <laughs> Sir, did you ever have a fight with your wife that you knew for sure you lost? Like you just, you didn't even kind of lose it. You really just lost. Are you saying to me, Pastor Kurt, that if I will take care of widows and orphans, God will take care of me? Yes, that is what I am saying. And it may not be with a check, maybe even rarely with a check. But I'll tell you what he'll do. If the sort of dependence you have on Jesus leads you to see the pain of others and act on it, he will give you freedom and make you a freedom giver. And that is Jesus-anity. Can I pray for you? Father God, I pray for our words. Let our faith show in the words we speak to one another. Let us get rid of all morally filthy words and become people that speak life to one another, speaking the truth, but doing it in love, God. And Father God, let us be recommitted, Lord, not to that, that post, that clip, that opinion that doesn't really change anything, but instead to seeing those in pain around us and taking responsibility for being the hands and feet of Jesus to them, for caring for the widows and orphans in whatever form they come. God, we know that that will transform the world just as it did in the first century. Give us this real authentic faith. God, I pray for this church. God, as they go on this journey of James, I pray that every step of the way they would get closer to you and a closer to real authentic faith. In Jesus' name, and everyone said,